0: Good evening. I'm Amna Navaz. Jeff Bennett is away. On the News Hour tonight, an on-the-ground look at the aftermath of the Israeli raid that rescued two hostages but killed dozens of Palestinians. Former President Trump's positions grow more extreme, advocating for mass deportation and encouraging Russia to attack NATO allies if they don't pay up. And both parties work to turn out New York voters to fill the seat of expelled Congressman George Santos. Welcome to the news hour. It's been a day of joy in Israel, a day of dread in Gaza, and a day of warnings in Washington. Israeli troops last night rescued two hostages from Hamas militants in Rafah in an operation that Palestinian authorities say killed more than 70. Israel is now threatening to assault Rafah, where it says Hamas leadership is hiding, and which is hosting more than half of Gaza's 2.3 million residents. But President Biden today warned Israel that the displaced must be protected. Nick Schifrin has our report.
1: As the Israeli military lit the Rafah sky on the ground, special forces launched a rescue mission. Israel said it raided an apartment complex and traded fire with Hamas militants before it could recover two hostages. Sixty-year-old Fernando Marman and 70-year-old Louis Har reunited with family members after 128 days of captivity. They're the second and third hostages to be rescued, and Israel called their release proof that the military needs to maintain pressure. This rescue mission underscores the importance of our ground operation in Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose brother died freeing kidnapped Israelis 48 years ago, called the rescue historic. I want to tell you that the release of Luis and Fernando is one of the most successful rescue operations in the history of the State of Israel. Rescue was facilitated by dozens of airstrikes, that the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry said killed dozens. Dr. Jamal Al-Hams, in blue tried to save the wounded in the only available facility, an overwhelmed tent. There is no big capacity. There
2: is no ability to that those because of me.
1: shortly. Sure. Yeah. Today, in the operation's aftermath, family homes are reduced to rubble. PBS NewsHour producer Shams Odeh. More than 10 of houses was demolished, as you see in the pictures. Here, where the, the Israeli commander said that there is full of the hostages. Here from Rafah my up If you look around me, you see all the house had been destroyed completely. And there's a lot of people killed here in this place in Rafah. Hamas said the Israeli operation killed at least three other hostages and wounded five more. Israel says it can't confirm that and accuses Hamas of lying about the hostages' fate. Rafah is home to 1.3 million displaced Gazans. But Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli military to develop plans to move civilians and besiege the city, where Israel says Hamas leadership is hiding. The international community is pushing back. Top European Union diplomat Josep Borrell,
3: Netanyahu have been asking
4: for the evacuation of 1.7 million people. Without saying where these people
2: could uh, be evacuated, the UN.
5: A potential full fledged military incursion into Rafah, where some 1.5 million Palestinians are packed against the Egyptian border with nowhere further to flee, is terrifying.
1: Egypt has threatened to suspend its 45 year old peace treaty with Israel. And a senior administration official said President Biden told Netanyahu that moving the population was a, quote, precondition of an operation, and it can't, quote, proceed without a credible plan.
3: Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafa, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. And we've also been clear from the start. We oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza.
1: Israel and the U.S. believe about 100 hostages remain alive in Gaza. More than 100 gained freedom in November thanks to a diplomatic agreement between Israel and Hamas. Progress is being made for another release. A senior administration official says the framework is, quote, pretty much now in place, and the initial phase is actually finished, but significant differences remain.
3: The key element of the deals are on the table. There are gaps that remain, but I'm encouraged Israeli leaders to keep working to
1: achieve the deal. Tomorrow, CIA Director Bill Burns will resume negotiations in Cairo to try and maintain diplomatic momentum before Israel follows through on its threat to invade Rafah. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schiffer.
0: In the day's other headlines, Houthi rebels in Yemen targeted another ship in the Red Sea in retaliation for Israel's offensive in Gaza. The cargo ship was in the Bab el mandeb Strait, headed for Iran, the rebels' main backer. Officials reported minor damage and no injuries among the crew. Houthi attacks have continued, despite U.S. and British airstrikes against them. Former President Trump asked the U.S. Supreme Court today to continue a delay in his election subversion trial in Washington. The emergency appeal was expected. It asks to keep the case on hold, pending a final ruling on whether Mr. Trump is immune from prosecution. The high court is also considering a separate appeal of efforts to remove him from state ballots. It's unclear when decisions might come. The U.S. Senate is poised to hold two more key procedural votes tonight on $95 billion in aid for Ukraine and Israel. The package cleared its first hurdle on Sunday and could reach a final vote by Wednesday. Most Republicans are still demanding changes in U.S. border policy after blocking a measure that included border reform provisions. That was a prominent issue in today's debate.
4: We should not send a dime to Ukraine until. Our borders are fully secured. We have already given Ukraine more than $120 billion. This is more than enough money to secure every border in our country.
1: These are enormously high stakes of the national security package. Our security, our values, our democracy. It's a down payment for the survival of Western democracy and the survival of American values.
0: The aid bill faces an uncertain fate in the Republican controlled House. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has canceled a trip to Brussels tomorrow to meet with NATO ministers on Ukraine aid. Pentagon officials say that follows his hospitalization on Sunday with bladder complications from prostate cancer surgery. Austin's doctor said today he had non surgical procedures to correct the problem and is expected to recover fully. In Pakistan, thousands of supporters of former Prime Minister Imran Khan protested last week's parliamentary elections. He is jailed, but his loyalists ran as independents and won the most seats. In protests over the weekend and again today, they claimed they might have won an outright majority in parliament, but they charged that the outcome was rigged. Instead, two other parties are now in talks to form a government. A U.N. report today offers a grim assessment of the world's migratory species. The authors studied nearly 1,200 species, from songbirds to whales to sea turtles. They concluded that about 44 percent of the species are declining in population. They also assessed that more than one-fifth are threatened with extinction. The report blamed habitat loss, illegal hunting, climate change and other factors. Back in this country, the Kansas City Chiefs are celebrating their third Super Bowl win in five years. They beat the San Francisco 49ers in Las Vegas last night 25-22, claiming the NFL title for a second straight year. Quarterback Patrick Mahomes won his third Super Bowl MVP award, and he was already looking ahead.
2: I'm going to celebrate at the parade, and then I'm going to do whatever I can to be back in this game next year and try to go for that three-peat. I'm going to celebrate with my guys because of how we've done this, um, but then we're going to work our way to get back to this game next year.
0: No team has ever won the NFL championship three years in a row. And on Wall Street, stocks stayed near record levels, despite losses in the tech sector. The Dow Jones industrial average gained 125 points to close at 38797. The Nasdaq fell 48 points, and the S&P 500 slipped four. And a passing of note, former longtime NPR broadcaster Bob Edwards died over the weekend of bladder cancer and heart trouble. He started with NPR in 1974 and co-hosted All Things Considered for five years. Then he spent nearly 25 years anchoring Morning Edition. Bob Edwards was 76 years old. Still to come on the Hour: Tamara Keith and Amy Walter break down the latest political headlines. A new documentary explores black astronauts' efforts to overcome injustice, why some communities of color are embracing youth tackle football despite safety concerns, plus much more.
1: This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University.
0: On the campaign trail this weekend, former President Donald Trump made clear that if elected again, he'd pursue more extreme immigration policies, including mass deportations of millions of people.
6: On day one, I will terminate every open border policy of the Biden administration, and we will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. We have no choice.
0: To break down the potential impact of Trump's agenda, Laura Barone Lopez joins us now. So, Laura, what has the former president laid out in terms of his immigration plan if he were to win this year? So,
7: Amna, that mass deportation plan that Trump has talked about. Including this weekend, we we know some details of how it would be carried out from Stephen Miller, the architect of Trump's first-term immigration policies, who remains a close ally uh, and advisor to the president. Stephen Miller talked about how they would carry out that type of deportation plan to right-wing personality Charlie Kirk last fall.
1: Then, in terms of personnel, you go to the red-state governors and you say, "Give us your National Guard." We will deputize them as immigration enforcement officers. The Alabama National Guard is going to arrest illegal aliens in Alabama, and the Virginia National Guard in Virginia. And if you're going to go into an unfriendly state like Maryland, well, it would just be Virginia doing the arrest in Maryland, right, very close, very nearby.
7: So, there, Stephen Miller is talking about how they would federalize the National Guard to carry out the mass deportation plan through comments from Stephen Miller, through comments from the former president himself, reports, as well as uh, aligned, um, aligned... Policy groups, we have a picture of the type of immigration policies that the former president would implement if he were to win a second term. And so the list that we have is not an exhaustive list, but it includes building large scale camps near the southern border, a renewed Muslim travel ban, the end of birthright citizenship for U.S. born children of undocumented immigrants, and creating a federalized army of red state national guards, like Stephen Miller referenced.
0: Is that legally possible? Even federalizing red state national guard? So technically, yes, it
7: is. Amna, I spoke to Joseph Nunn. He is from the Brennan Center for Justice, and he is a legal expert on U.S. military activities domestically. And he said that uh, this is legally possible for the president to do.
1: Donald Trump's proposal to send the National Guard from red states into blue states in order to enforce this deportation program could only be accomplished through invoking the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act makes the president the sole judge of whether a given situation warrants invoking the act. In other words, an insurrection is whatever the president says is an insurrection. Uh, that's why it's so important for Congress to to reform the Insurrection Act, to uh, put in place safeguards against abuse, because uh, as things stand, there are quite literally no guardrails.
7: So as, as Joseph Nunn said there, former President Trump, Has pretty wide authority to institute the Insurrection Act in order to federalize National Guards and be able to send them into other states to round up migrants. And the last time, AMNA, that the Insurrection Act was invoked was 1992. It's rarely used. And before that, the only time it was ever invoked over the objection of states and state leaders was in the
0: 1960s. Laura, what would something like that mean for the military? Joseph Nunn of the Brennan
7: Center told me that, to even do something like that, you would have to have wide mobilization, large-scale mobilization of military, of the National Guard. And it would require these members of the military, who have other duties, mind you, and the National Guard is key in helping with duties abroad, uh, that they would then be taken away from that in order to carry this out. I also spoke to a former commissioner of Customs and Border Protection who said that National Guard are not trained in the way that border agents, in the way that ICE agents are trained to be able to tell what people's status are, whether someone can be detained. And they are trained, ICE and uh, Border Patrol agents, in the civil and criminal laws uh, that enable them to carry out immigration law. And that's not something that National Guard is prepared for.
0: Laura Mr. Trump also made some rather eye- popping statements about America's commitment to NATO allies. What did he say, and what has the response been like?
7: Uh, Amna, his statements were pretty in form with the former president. We've heard him in the past say that he isn't always doesn't always want to be aligned with NATO and the commitment that America has made to NATO, but he went further this weekend.
1: One of the presidents of a big country stood up, said, well, sir uh, if we don't pay
6: and we're attacked by russia will you protect us i said you didn't pay you're delinquent he said yes let's say that happened no i would not protect
1: you in fact i would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want you got to pay you got to pay your bills
7: going further there omna by outright encouraging an adversary like russia to invade NATO allies and that he would encourage them to do so, the White House almost immediately responded, calling it uh, unhinged comments, saying that it threatened not just national security, but also global stability. And I spoke to a former ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder, who said that his phone was almost immediately blinking red after those comments, hearing from counterparts in Europe, and saying that now uh, allies in Europe are essentially considering the unthinkable, which is that the U.S. may no longer be willing to play a leadership role in NATO. And this all comes, AMNA, as Vice President Kamala Harris is about to head to the Munich Security Conference to
0: address allies. Laura Baron Lopez with some insight into what another Trump presidency could look like. Laura, thank you. Thank you. European leaders have widely condemned those comments by Mr. Trump as reckless and dangerous. And in a meeting focused on Ukraine today, Germany, France and Poland expressed solidarity with one another, saying Europe must be ready to defend itself and its allies. For more on the implications for the U.S. and the world, we turn now to Kurt Volker. He was U.S. ambassador to NATO during the George W. Bush administration and U.S. special representative for Ukraine negotiations during the Trump administration. Ambassador Volker, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to begin with your reaction to those comments from former President Trump saying he would encourage Russia to attack a NATO ally if they didn't pay their dues. What did you think when you heard that?
3: Uh, It's it's really an outrageous comment. I mean, if you look at what Russia is doing to Ukraine right now uh, killings, bombing cities, civilians, civilian deaths, torture, rape as a weapon of war. Um, You shouldn't wish this on anybody. And to say that we would encourage Putin to attack one of our allies is uh, really too much. Um, Now to be clear, what President Trump was doing, he was at a campaign rally and he was bragging about having said this in the past. It wasn't a comment about the future. But even so, it is nothing to brag about. It is not the kind of leadership that America should be showing in the world. And I would add that you know NATO was created to prevent war. NATO was created so that, by banding together and countries pledging to defend each other, we would dissuade anybody from attacking. And here we have uh, a suggestion that someone should attack. Uh, that's exactly the opposite of what we should be trying to do. We what, don't want to see a war.
0: What do you believe that the U.S. relationship with NATO would look like under another Trump presidency?
3: Well, it's hard to know, because President Trump says a lot of things. Uh, Remember, during the first uh, President Trump's first term as president, uh, he had a lot of warm words for Vladimir Putin. And at the same time, he threw the Russian consulate out of San Francisco. He provided arms for Ukraine. He uh, rounded up and arrested and deported a lot of Russian intelligence officers. So uh, there are things that were done. Under the Trump administration, that were sound policy, even though the rhetoric coming from the president sometimes is in the opposite direction.
0: Do you believe that he would try to pull the U.S. out of the alliance as he said he would?
3: Uh, I don't know. I mean, the most recent thing he said uh, that I heard anyway was that he would want NATO to be in kind of a dormant position. I don't know what that means. Uh, NATO is a defensive alliance and is, by definition, almost in a dormant position until attacked. But the point is that if attacked, there needs to be a certain and substantial response so that it serves its role of deterring such an attack. And uh, I, I think that he, he would be unlikely to try to pull the U.S. out of NATO. And even if he tried, I think it would be unlikely to be successful, because there would be substantial resistance uh, within the Senate, and it would certainly go to the courts to see whether he even had the authority to do that.
0: Ambassador, I want to put to you a statement from Trump senior advisor Jason Miller in response to some of the coverage around Mr. Trump's comments. He said this in part. He said, Democrat and media pearl-clutcher seem to have forgotten that we had four years of peace and prosperity under President Trump, but Europe saw death and destruction under Obama-Biden, and now more death and destruction under Biden. When you don't pay your defense spending, you can't be surprised that you get more war. Ambassador, his claim is basically that because President Trump publicly pressured people to Increase their defense spending, the world was safer. What do you make of that argument?
3: Well, there are several things that are wrapped up there, and I think we have to pull them apart. Uh, The first thing is that he's absolutely right. European allies do need to spend more on defense. Every U.S. president that I've worked with ever since Reagan has said European allies need to do more on defense. President Trump was uh, more direct about it, more forceful about it, and allies did spend more on defense under his watch. But they've spent even more (laughs) under President Biden. And it's not because of Biden, it's because of Putin. Uh, Putin has launched a war in Europe, the likes of which we have not seen since World War II. And this has caused European allies to genuinely fear for their security and to begin doing much more for defense than they had been. Poland is going to spend 4 percent of GDP on defense this year, 40 billion euros. Uh, Estonia, also 4 percent. These countries are ramping up their defense spending because of what they see happening in Europe. And that's why it's so important that the U.S., as the leader of NATO, be supporting and encouraging that and sending a message to any aggressor that there would be a collective response if attacked.
0: Before we go, I need to ask you, Ambassador, about the immigration piece of Mr. Trump's plans that my colleague Laura Barone-Lopez just reported on, the idea that a U.S. president says he would deploy red state National Guard troops to go into blue states to remove undocumented migrants. What's your reaction to that? What would be the impact of something like that?
3: Uh, um, well, uh, let's first say, I don't think that this is something that's actually possible. The governors and the National Guards of the states where this would take place would not want this they would resist it i can't see states going to put their militias up against each other this would be a civil war i really don't see this happening
0: that is former us ambassador to nato kurt volker joining us tonight ambassador thank you so much for your time appreciate it thank you House Republican leaders continue to struggle to conduct the basic functions of government, hindered by a razor-thin majority and infighting within their ranks. This Congress has witnessed failed floor votes, two extended battles for the speaker's gavel, and the booting of former Congressman George Santos late last year. As Lisa Desjardins explains, the latest wrinkle will come tomorrow, when Santos's district gets its congressional voice back.
5: At the base of Long Island, a race for Congress with a New York persona, fast, massive stakes, and quite a backstory. 73 days ago, House members ousted serial fabulist George Santos. That empty seat has been the difference in some key votes.
7: The resolution is not adopted,
5: including last week's attempt to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, which failed in the House by one vote. Democratic hopes in the race are pinned on Tom Swazi, messaging
3: seriousness. This is not a game. This is not about tweets. This is not about press conferences. This is about real people's lives. Swazi is a moderate
5: Democrat who held the seat for six years before falling short in his 2022 bid for governor. Facing him,
8: you are a talker. I am the person who will deliver when I promise I will deliver.
5: Is Mazi Pillip, an Ethiopian born Israeli American who served in the Israeli Defense Forces and is a county lawmaker elected to office as a Republican, but still registered to vote as a Democrat.
3: She sits in caucuses and votes with the Republicans.
5: Grant Lally, publisher of the North Shore Leader, has a unique vantage point. His small paper first exposed George Santos's lies and now is covering his replacement.
3: It's a special election, and it's a nationally uh, famous special election. People are watching it. The big issue here is migrants, migration, the border crisis, because there are ten cities now in this congressional district holding thousands of migrants.
5: The months of migrant crisis in New Yorkers' turf has dominated the campaign. And it's why Lally's newspaper endorsed Pillip, though it endorsed Swazi in past years.
3: The immigration issue is so important, and the migrant issue is such a crisis, particularly locally, that we felt that her election would send the right signal in dealing with it seriously.
5: And she is signaling that she's in line with most House Republicans, including on Mayorkas. Absolutely,
8: I will vote to impeach uh, Mayorkas. He failed to protect the American people. He should not be there. And this is why this election is so important. We have to have a strong majority to start to do the right things.
5: But same issue and a different local newspaper, Newsday, sees Swazi as the solution, writing that he would work across the aisle to find real border solutions. That's Swazi's message,
3: that he's tough, but not partisan on the border. She says she's concerned about the border, but she opposes the bipartisan solution that would actually close the border.
5: Meanwhile, both candidates tiptoe around their presumed tops of the ticket in November, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Emily Noh covers New York state politics for
9: Politico. A lot of local seats have flipped red since Joe Biden won this district in 2020. Swazi doesn't want to be closely affiliated with Joe Biden because he's so unpopular in the district.
5: Pillip praised Trump, but until this weekend wouldn't say she voted for him in 2020. And when it comes to his legal problems.
3: Just so I'm clear, if he is convicted of a crime, you will not support him.
5: I'm not going to support. Nobody's above the law. The race has brought an avalanche of ads.
3: I'm Tom Swazi, and I approve this message. I'm Mazi Pelop,
5: and I approve this message. But as they play, an actual storm, a snowstorm, is brewing that could make early voting critical.
9: Normally, it favors Democrats who like to turn out early, versus Republicans who come on Election Day. But both parties, both candidates, really pushing their supporters to bank their votes and come out before the storm hits.
5: New York Democrats are in the process of redrawing the state's congressional battle lines, presumably in their party's favor. And this district's lines will be closely watched. The
9: path to the gavel in the House most likely runs through about half a dozen seats in New York State in the suburbs. Meaning, in Long
5: Island, tomorrow we have a race that could preview how suburbs will break this fall and also how the House will operate next week. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins.
0: For more on the impact of that special election, as well as some congressional retirements, it's time for Politics Monday with Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. Great to see you both, as always. So let's pick up where Lisa left off. There. What stands out to you, Amy, about this special election, and also what are you going to be watching for? Uh, that's right. I mean, special elections
10: are special. <laughs> they are unique. <laughs> so I don't want to overgeneralize, but. Lisa's piece was really spot on, which is, it's getting national attention because of two reasons. One, it's a swing seat. And two, it's a it's a district in which the migrant crisis is literally in its backyard. So the debate over what to do about it is actually playing out politically in mm-hmm. real time. And while, again, this is a unique... We're in a unique period of time in one unique district, I do think for folks in Congress looking at this race, um, the decision by the Democrat in the race to talk about wanting to have something like border security mm-hmm. bill, like the uh, the bipartisan bill in the Senate, and the Republicans saying no, um, what that will tell leaders in Congress going forward, I think, will be very important. And this is one of those very... Uh, important swing seats that will determine who controls the House in 2024. Not saying, if Democrats win, it means they win the House, Republicans win, they win the House, but it's the kind of place that actually is going to be
0: critical. What about you, Tam? What are you watching?
4: Well, it is a rare election year trial run early yeah. in an election year, yeah. where uh, various groups and and the parties are trying things out that we might see later in the election year in other congressional yeah. races or even in the presidential race in terms of on the ground tactics. Mm-hmm. So, watching to see how those experiments that are happening turn out. Um, and then also just what's up with the weather? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's supposed to snow tomorrow. That's right. Um, there, you know, there's this sort. Of raging debate in the Republican uh, Party about whether you bank your vote or whether you always vote on election day. And snowstorms are the kind of things that are why uh, parties try to bank their votes. Mm -hmm. So seeing how that plays out in this race, Waltz. I love when
0: election coverage also becomes weather coverage. Mm -hmm. I know. Look at you. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, in the House, I want to talk about some other shifts we're seeing. The fact that Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher, who's been a rising star in the Republican Party, a leading national security voice as well, announced he will not. Not run for re election. Here is what he said in part in a statement. He said the framers intended citizens to serve in Congress for a season and then return to their private lives. Electoral politics was never supposed to be a career, and trust me, Congress is no place to grow old. (laughs) Amy, he's in his fourth term. He's only 39 years old. What does his departure say to you? Uh,
10: Listen, we have seen Republicans, especially, who have gone up against. The status quo, whether that's Donald Trump himself or things that the Donald Trump wing of the party would like to see passed, if they have gone up against that, they have usually been on the losing end, either losing a primary or realizing the writing's on the wall, they may lose a primary, and so deciding to retire. Mm -hmm. He's also unique in that he is a conservative Republican who really does believe in working across party lines, on the China uh, committee, for example. Remember this right now, if you look at recent Pew polling, what we see, the difference between how Republicans and Democratic voters see the issue of compromise is very different. Republicans see this as something that shows. Basically, a sign of weakness. Democrats don't see that similarly.
0: Tam, it's also, as Amy mentioned, he's done a lot of bipartisan work to counter China's influence. We also have the fact that future funding for Ukraine is very uncertain in the House right now. Are we seeing a more isolationist stance already take hold in the House as we move towards an all but certain Trump nomination? Mm-hmm
4: former President Trump is making foreign policy a place where he is exerting his power over the party and exerting his power over members of his own party who are in Congress. Now, part of that is because this this supplemental for funding for Ukraine and Israel and countering China and and all of this is is basically the only thing happening right now in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so this is where Trump is able to try to influence the party. But, also, this is where he has taken the party. Um, it It is a much more isolationist party under him. And you can see the split. Uh, the split is playing out in the Republican primary, where <laughs> there is Donald Trump, and then uh, there's Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley's ceiling is somewhere around 30 percent. And many of those voters are the voters that are continue to be more traditional Republicans, Mm -hmm. uh, who are more concerned about America's place in the world. You know, she's out there talking about how you need to fund Ukraine. Um, That is not a popular view in Trump's Republican Party. And so you're seeing that split out on the campaign trail, where she is really struggling, uh, and where Trump Republicans are like, why would we support someone like that? She's just like George W. Bush. Um, who was his party standard bearer for a long time?
10: Right. You know, right. but the one thing to say, well, I do think the ranks have been thinning in Congress of yes. Republican internationalists. There were still 18 Republicans mm-hmm. who supported the supplemental funding in the Senate. So it's not so that insignificant, not right? It's no. not an insignificant number, but it's yeah. certainly uh, not as large as. It was 20 years
0: ago. Meanwhile, in the potential rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, we we should note the headlines that have really dominated since last week's special counsel report from Robert Hur was released. About have really been about President Biden's memory function, about his age after. Special counsel Her included his own assessment in that report. Former President Trump, meanwhile, continues to mix up world leaders, even U.S. leaders, often over the course of his long speeches. He often veers in and out of coherence. It doesn't generate the same headlines, though, Tam. So is there sort of an asymmetry of expectations at play here?
4: Well, there is an asymmetry. Part of that is that one of these people is the current president of the United Mm -hmm. States. And so President Biden gives a speech. Typically, his speeches are bite-sized enough to be carried live on television, and they are carried live on television. People see the president when he speaks because he's the president of the United States. Uh, former President Trump is a former president. He's running for running again. He's a candidate. He's basically his party's presumptive nominee. He gives these 2 hours speeches that go on forever and ever and ever, um, veer off in all kinds of wild directions, include um, things that you can't put on television because the FCC would come after you, um, and people aren't seeing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Former President Trump is putting out massive amounts of content that no one is seeing. Uh, Current President Biden is not putting out a lot of content. Um, He is pretty limited in his public engagements, um, and everybody sees it. And so it gets a different level of focus, in part because he's the president.
10: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And what you're seeing too in the polling is, th- there's a reason I think Democrats are not as engaged in this election as they were say going into 2020. Some of it that is there's reticence among Democrats about the president's age mm-hmm. and uh, his ability um, to do to, to do his job because of that. But the other is that when Donald Trump was in the White House, he was in your face every day all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is what motivated those voters to show up and vote in 2020 more than it was a sign of their sort of enthusiasm for Biden. I was looking at polling recently, and the percentage of people who say they're voting for Biden because they don't like Trump isn't much different than what it was in 2020. Hmm. So you know that has always been the underlying sort of energy behind the Biden campaign. But you need Trump to be more
0: in focus, which is why the campaign is going to try to make that. Tam, Republicans do jump on any Biden misstatement, though, and will fundraise off it immediately. And Democrats and the Biden campaign don't do the same. Is that a deliberate attempt? They actually are doing a
4: fair bit of it and they are ramping up more. They you know have Twitter accounts. President Biden is suddenly on TikTok, though with a firewalled phone that is not his. but there, you know, in in the sort of conservative world, there are memes born every second that go out uh, on social media. Memes about Biden being old. Meme, 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 meme. Um, there isn't the same culture of just like putting all that content out by average Democratic voters.
0: All right. Well, we'll wait and see. Amy Walter, Tamara Keith. Always great to see you both. Thank great. you so much. A new documentary explores the little known stories of the first black pilots and engineers who became astronauts, pioneers of NASA's space program. Jeff Bennett has this look at the film The Space Race, which airs tonight on the National Geographic Channel and is streaming starting tomorrow on Disney Plus and Hulu. It's part of our arts and culture series, Canvas.
6: Very few people today even have a clue about black people's contribution to human spaceflight because they weren't written in history books.
11: To tell us more, we're joined now by one of the directors of the film, Lisa Cortez, and retired Major General Charles Bolden, an astronaut and former NASA administrator who's featured in the documentary. It's so great to have you both here. Great to be here, thank you. And Charlie Bolden, it's always an honor to get to speak with you, in large part because you've had such a distinguished career in the military and in the space program, retired Marine Corps major general, NASA administrator during the Obama administration. You flew on four space shuttle missions. It's hard to believe you didn't set out to be an aviator.
6: I did not. That is not (laughs) something I wanted to be. In fact, that was one of the things I swore I would never do, was fly an airplane. Yeah. No way.
11: Tell me about some of the obstacles and challenges you faced in being a pioneering astronaut.
6: I I came from the segregated South, so I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, my wife and me. And um, uh, at the age of 12, I saw a program called Men of Annapolis about life at the Naval Academy, decided that's where I wanted to go to school, so that was my goal in life from then on and um, met with the obstacle when i was finally at the high school and i could apply that nobody in the south carolina delegation was going to appoint a black to the, to any service academy
2: hmm.
6: um, and so i was just overwhelmed by disappointment but i learned that the vice president of the united states can make an appointment of anybody and that was lyndon johnson at the time right. so i began to write him over years never heard from him but subsequently got a visit from a Navy recruiter and then a retired federal judge from right here in DC, Judge Bennett, who came around uh, at the behest of President Johnson looking for qualified young men, only men back then, to Mm. to go to the service academies. I ended up getting an appointment from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I was off to the Naval Academy. Wow. But I came out of there saying no Marine Corps, no aviation.
11: Uh, Lisa Cortez, there are any number of stories you could tell as an award-winning producer and director. Why tell this one?
9: I am always intrigued by the hidden figures. People and stories that we think we know about, but actually when you start to pull back the layers, you discover the contributors who have not had their time in the spotlight. And to be able to focus on the beginning of the program and Ed Dwight's journey as we trace it then to the shuttle era men and to the present was something that was missing in the popular narratives being told and just so rich in in detail and legacy. Guy
11: Bluford was the first black American to go into space as an astronaut. That was sure. in 1983, but Lisa mentioned Ed Dwight. Yes, He was set to do that some 20 years earlier, right exactly. but it didn't work out. Tell us about him and tell us this story.
6: his story. He did not work out very simply because he was the dream of one person, and that was President uh, Kennedy. When President Kennedy was assassinated, uh, within weeks, if not days, uh, any dream of him becoming an astronaut was gone because they just took him out of the the line of people who were potential astronauts. NASA went through a selection uh, that year, and he was not among those that was selected, although everybody had given him the expectation that he would be, and the explanations, uh, the the funny thing is there are no explanations. So even to this day, you have have his story from him, but there is no one on the other side to tell the opposing story. It's just everybody says, no, we never heard of that.
11: And then Dwight has since become a prolific artist and sculptor.
6: I tell people that the greatest gift to the world was Ed Dwight not being selected as an astronaut. Now that may sound strange. Hmm. He is one of the most prolific sculptors today. The one that I love is his Emancipation Sculptor, which is a life-size, I mean it's huge, that stretches across the front of the the state capitol in Austin, Texas. Hmm. And um, I think it's appropriate for today that Ed Dwight's uh, work going from slavery all the way up to the modern time, you know, titled Emancipation, is, is on display in front of the Texas State House.
11: Lisa, let's talk about the pioneering black women astronauts Mae Jemison, Stephanie Wilson, Joan Higginbotham, Cyan Proctor. How do their stories figure into the larger story of racial progress in the space program?
9: Well, one of the things that's interesting about our film is we look at how the program changes with the introduction of the shuttle, because the shuttle allows for people who are not going to be pilots. Um, And so we first see this expansion in 83 um, with the group that includes, you know, Ron and Guy and Fred. Um, And then shortly afterwards, we see Mae Jameson and other women who are scientists, who are geologists, who are able to then become a part of this expansion.
11: And Charlie, you have logged more than 680 hours not in space. Lot of, not a lot of time.
6: Not a lot of yeah, time? Not, not, It's, I love to hear it, uh, <laughs> and it sounds like a lot, but it, in relative terms, that's about a month in space. Okay. Um, Victor Glover, on his first flight, spent six months in space, you know, so he... And
11: he's the first black he's astronaut the first, to go to the International Space black Station. first
6: black astronaut to go to the International Space Station. So that'll tell you. And Victor and I have this thing that there was, a, I want to say, a 20-year gap between when I became uh, the second black pilot to fly in space to get into NASA's astronaut program, and Victor became the third. So we, we seem to go in these decadal... <laughs> Uh, upgrades to the system, which, which just tells you that in this kind of activity, you've got to be persistent and you've got to have um, a pipeline through which people go. And, and that, you know, Lisa's movie, hopefully this is the right time for it because you're hearing a lot of ridiculous stuff about the lack of qualifications of blacks and women in fields like aviation and everything else, Mm -hmm. uh, which is absolutely absurd. So you can't argue with what is documented in this particular movie.
11: Lisa, there's such power and poignancy in letting the astronauts tell their own stories in the way that you do in this film. What conversations do you hope this documentary will inspire?
9: Well, increasingly, we live in a time where there are many factors who are trying to tell us that the teaching of black history is not necessary, or they're trying to recreate the contributions of African-Americans to our great country. And Charlie Bolden has one of my favorite quotes, which is, Charlie, actually, if you will share it about (laughs) our history, I think it it is the perfect thing that people need to understand.
6: And about the film. No, I, I, What I have always said is that black history is American history. And we all play a role in the history of this country where, uh, you know, we're on this constant march toward a more perfect union. And my point to everyone, and I think what Lisa is saying, is what this movie will hopefully portray is we deny black history, American history, at our own peril. You know, if we choose to ignore it and choose to pretend that you and I don't exist or you and I didn't contribute to this phenomenal country that remains the greatest country on the planet, you, you do that at your own peril. We've been through this once. We've been to this game. You know, we've been to this show. Uh, the scary part about what we're going through today is the fact that we know the end if we keep going down this road of trying to pretend that people who played one of the most important roles in the space program. If you're talking about people like Katherine Johnson, the hidden figures, um, you cannot eradicate them from the story because there are too many people who participated in that story. John Glenn, when he was here on the planet, would tell you uh, that was the difference in him saying, I'm going and I'm not going, was this young black woman who had done the math and told him that everything was going to be okay. You can deny that, you can pretend it didn't happen, but you've got other people who are around who will tell you, no, buddy, we weren't going had it not been for Katherine Johnson. And that's important. It's important for young kids to understand that.
11: Well, the film is The Space Race. Lisa Cortez, we appreciate you. And Major General Charlie Bolden, thank you so much, sir, for for your service, your sacrifice, and your example.
6: It's always good to be with you and Lisa. You're two phenomenal people that I I love dearly, and I watch you all the time. So, Uh, thanks very much for this opportunity.
11: Thank you.
0: Thank you. And online, you can hear more from Charles Bolden on how space changed his perspective of the world. That's on our YouTube channel. Last night's Super Bowl, with more than 100 million viewers expected, capped a major year for the NFL. In 2023, NFL games accounted for 93 of the 100 most-watched TV programs. But the risks of the game have been well-documented. And for some, that's changed how they see kids tackle football. For others, including in the town of Lexington, Mississippi, the commitment to youth football remains high. This report comes to us from the Shirley Povich and Howard Centers of Journalism at the University of Maryland and the student correspondent is Sapna Bansal. Like
8: many kids in Lexington, Mississippi, R.J. and Mason Redmond have been playing tackle football on this field since they were five. It's a place that fosters big dreams. You know what you want to be, both of you, when you grow up? Yes, ma'am. Well, what do you want to be? An NFL player. You want to be an NFL player when you grow up, huh? Yes, ma'am. How about you? An NFL player, too. Really? Parents enroll their kids on teams like the Lexington Colts by the time they reach kindergarten, with an eye on where the sport can take them. Currently, one in every 385 Lexington residents plays football at a Power 5 school, considered part of the most prominent conferences in college athletics. It's one of the best rates of any town in the country, and it inspires Mason and RJ's father to imagine what's possible for his sons.
12: When we're watching the NFL games on Sundays or Saturdays, or whatever the case may be, I tell them that that can be you out there on that field. It's all boils down to what you want. If you want it, you can get it.
8: Lexington, a town of nearly 1,200 people, is 77% black. It's in the second poorest county in the nation's poorest state. Nearly 35% of people live in poverty.
12: We live in here in Lexington, Mississippi, which is Holmes County, small population. And uh, the opportunity for kids is, is 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 at a bad minimum. You know, uh, we have no swimming pool here. We have no community swimming pool. We have no tennis court. The basketball court is is bad minimum.
8: In a place like Lexington, football doesn't just benefit the few who become stars; it helps open doors, according to Marcus Rogers, the head football coach at Holmes County Central High School.
2: Football it teaches about life. It's like now I'm not playing football anymore and I tell the kids all the time, football set me up to do what I'm doing today. And I didn't play in the NFL. uh, I played high level college football, uh, but it, it set me up with relationships with people.
8: A 2023 Boston University study found that those who start playing tackle football at an early age or play it for more than 11 years are at greater risk of cognitive and behavioral problems. As a result, Many communities around the country are turning away from youth football programs amid health and safety concerns. Tackle football participation is down 13.2% from 2019 to 2022 among kids 6 through 12. But communities of color have a higher tendency to stick with the sport. Some, including Marcus Rogers, say safety around the sport has improved.
2: In these times, football is the same as it's ever been. I don't force it on anyone, war, because it has to be something you want to do, because it, it, it's a tough, tough personal sport, whether you're a female or male trying to play.
8: But that's not the only reason communities of color are sticking with football. A Povich and Howard Center poll found that black and Hispanic parents are nearly twice as likely as white parents to see youth football as a path to college scholarships and even the NFL.
12: Out of all these kids over the state of Mississippi, Starting out at, they, at five and six and seven, eight years old, now, you're somebody's gonna end up in the NFL. It's gonna happen. Somebody's gonna push it to their screen and they're gonna end up in the NFL somewhere.
8: Last season, nearly 40 children ages five through 12 played for the Colts. All were black. Since the Colts were founded in 1999, only two white players have ever enrolled. Colts CEO Sherry Reeves said a big part of the reason for that is white and black students in the town don't attend school together.
4: There's really very little intermingling socially among the kids that are black and white in this community. It's rooted and grounded in a, in a mentality that has been overshadowing, and, and I'm gonna say Mississippi is in general.
8: Lexington itself is still dealing with the consequences of a long racial divide. A Confederate monument stands in the town square The town's police department remains under investigation by the Department of Justice for alleged civil rights violations. Some families say the path to a better future may involve tackle football. And some of those success stories began with the Lexington Colts, as well as nearby teams in Durant and Chula. But football can't keep every kid on the right path.
2: Uh, I've I've lost a couple football players in the last few years. More than a couple, you know. We've lost a few students per year gun violence, drive-by shootings, stuff like that, you know. So uh, we'll continue to work with these guys and and, and try to get them to, to have a different mentality.
8: For the PBS NewsHour and the Povich and Howard Centers at the University of Maryland, this is Sapna Banzel reporting from Lexington, Mississippi.
0: Later tonight, here on PBS, a new docu-series hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. delves into the power of African American gospel music, exploring the rich history of Black spirituality through sermon and song. The Black
9: preaching tradition is deeply connected to gospel music. Our singers preach and our preachers sing. God, we ask that you reinvigorate. Read
5: You feel it deep down in your soul. It makes you want to shout. It makes you want to (laughs) sing. Ah,
4: That's
6: beautiful.
0: Gospel airs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS stations and at pbs.org. And join us again here tomorrow for our report from the streets of El Salvador, where a crackdown on gang violence has made neighborhoods safer, but also put democratic values at risk. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Navaz. On behalf of the entire News Hour team, thank you for joining us.